And I think the mission of switching our economy to 100% renewable and clean energy in some ways feels like this huge, impossible mission. And the only way we do it is we build these mass movements. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen. So let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I had a great interview with Steph Spear. She's the co-founder and CEO for Solstice. She co-founded and runs Solstice, an enterprise dedicated to radically expanding the number of American households that can take advantage of clean energy using community-shared solar farms. Steph is an entrepreneur and community builder with management experience in the Middle East, South Asia, and the United States. She was selected as Inc. Magazine's Female Founder 100, Echoing Green Climate Fellow, a renewable energy world 40 under 40 in solar. She previously led sales and marketing initiatives in India at D-Light, a solar products company powering areas without reliable electricity. Spearheading Acumen's renewable energy impact investment strategy in Pakistan, developed Middle East policy as the youngest policy director at the White House National Security Council, and fuel organized in seven states for the first Obama presidential campaign. She holds a BA for Miel, a master's in public affairs with the distinction from Princeton, and an MBA from MIT with a certificate in entrepreneurship and innovation. There are a lot of interesting topics that Steph talked about regarding community solar. One of them is innovative technique on customer acquisition that is different from how traditional solar customer acquisition companies are acquiring customers. And also it reduces churn and retains customers for a longer period of time. She also talks about Solstice's energy score and how that's a better indicator of customers paying their community solar bill versus FICO credit scores. And then how to engage the LMI community regarding community solar and them being customers and basically receiving a discount to their electricity by being a subscriber to the community solar system. And she also talks about future trends. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm really excited to have Steph Spear. She's the co-founder and CEO of Solstice. Thank you, Steph, for being on the podcast today. Of course. Happy to be here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were talking about in the pre-interview how we were both in a panel. I was the moderator and you're one of the speakers for CS Solar Goes Corporate. And it was November of 2019. I don't know if you even remember the title. It was PPA versus Community Solar, Utilizing Commercial Rooftops for Optimal Value Creation. I remember it. Yeah. And you did a great job facilitating. And you did a great job speaking at the conference. And I really learned a lot hearing like your perspective on community solar and customer acquisition. And I was really excited to hear what you're doing at Solstice. And I've known, you know, Sandhya for a little while before we met at that conference. It would be great though for our audience to learn more about Solstice. Can you talk about Solstice in more detail? Yeah, absolutely. So Solstice is a community solar company. We're based in Boston and we connect households and businesses to community shared solar farms and then manage the whole customer experience for the life of the project. And we partner with the developers who are building solar projects like you, Benoit, and we take care of the end-to-end customer experience. So we educate customers about community solar, we connect them to their local solar farm, and then we handle the building and the crediting and the integration with the utility accounts through our software and customer service too for the life of the project. 
So you do basically acquisition, management, customer service. So you're pretty much handled the whole kit and caboodle of the customer acquisition process for Community Solar. Exactly, because developers and financiers are very good at what they do, which is put solar in the ground and finance the projects. And I think often they don't have the expertise or the interest or desire or resources to do all the customer-facing activity. And so that's what we partner with them to do. And we work to make that process really community-driven and really inclusive as well. That's amazing. Can you talk about how you educate customers on community solar, especially you're talking to residential customers? And this is a relatively new concept. I think it would too be helpful for our audience as well, like if you could define community solar. Absolutely. Yeah. Community solar can mean different things in our industry. So in its current it form, community solar is this idea that you don't have to put solar on your rooftop. You can buy a portion of a neighborhood shared solar farm and switch to solar that way instead. And the vast majority of community solar projects across the country are subscription models. So you're not paying upfront. You're not putting anything on your home you're paying for the power that's produced by your portion of a shared solar farm. And for a lot of the states in the country, you're getting a guaranteed discount on the power that you're buying from these community solar farms. So you're a subscriber and there's no upfront cost and you don't put anything on your homes and you're getting a guaranteed discount on your electricity bill. So it's a pretty good value proposition for customers. The only issue is that people think this is too good to be true actually, because so many people haven't heard of community solar. And even if you have, I'm not sure anyone is waking up in the morning thinking the thing that's going to solve all my problems today is community solar. (laughs) And so there is a lot of education involved and that is a big part of our job. I think you made a couple of great points. You talked about subscription, but there's as well another model, which I don't know you focus on where customers could invest in projects themselves. Is that something Yeah, definitely. And that's actually the origin of community solar in this country really started out in more ownership models, smaller co-op models of investing in local community solar farms. And that's a great model because it puts ownership within the community, but it requires people to put upfront capital up generally. And so what we saw over time from the beginning of the community solar industry in the kind of 2013-14 era to now, people have have moved away from the ownership model for two large reasons. One is there was a lot of confusion about SEC regulations and what is considered a taxable dividend and whether community solar benefits could be a taxable dividend. And the second reason why people moved away from a lot of the ownership models was because it was hard to convince someone to put up a few thousand dollars or $10,000 for something that they couldn't see. And they would eventually get paid back over many years. So it's still a great model for the right customer in the right place. But you saw saw a lot of the commercialization of community solar move away from the ownership model to the subscription model. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's interesting because as you mentioned, like with the SEC requirements, it's just a lot of legal cost and other sorts of costs related to, you know, getting the investors on board. So that's Yeah, that. exactly. And you had asked earlier about, okay, well, how do we find customers? You know, what is our go-to-market strategy? And it's such an important question because community solar projects in the last five years, a lot of the ones that have succeeded have been really good at 
finding and cultivating and retaining customers. And a lot of the community solar projects that have failed are the ones that didn't fill their projects on time with customers or did customer acquisition or management poorly. So we don't do the typical acquisition strategies that you often will see in solar. And it's a lot of these stranger to stranger contact methods. So door to door canvassing, cold calling, direct mail, lead generation online in online ads or yelling at you as you walk by in Home Depot or the farmer's market. Like those are the tried and true ways to sign people up for solar and they're effective at low single digit conversion rates. But what we do is a little bit more of a community driven strategy. So rather than rely on stranger to stranger contact, we rely on peer to peer and network contact to enroll customers for community solar projects in mass. And by that, I mean, we partner with community organizations locally that help get the word out about community solar to the constituencies and their membership. And we've partnered with entities as wide ranging as a local house of worship or a local nonprofit that's spreading the word to their memberships. Or we've also partnered with property management companies and municipalities and school districts to get the word out to their constituencies. And the beauty in that, and this is a method that I learned when I worked on the Obama campaign as an organizer, the beauty in that is that it becomes less about stranger to stranger contact and people telling other people that they trust about community solar. And when you hear about community solar from someone that you trust, you're about 50 times more likely, according to our customer data, to convert to community solar. Like the conversion rates are exponentially high because you trust the messenger because this sounds too good to be true. So it's really important that we put the community back in community solar and spread it through the communities because it's much more sustainable that way and it becomes, it grows on its own organically. That's a great point and huge point that you mentioned about how you differentiate from other customer acquisition companies. And I think that's so great, like going within the community and it's almost like a referral and there's that trust factor. And that was interesting to hear the numbers of like how high it is in conversion. And it's easier to actually build that connection with the community from a cost perspective, I think, than those other sorts of lead generations, which are more cold, you know? Exactly. And the effects are more enduring when you work within the community, right? Your churn rates are going to be lower too. Your default rates are going to be lower because people feel connected to the community. They trust the project. They feel good about being part of the project. And then if someone happens to move out of the territory area and you need to replace them, you can just go back to the community to replace them. All your costs are lower in the long run when you work through the community. It's going to take more time in the beginning, for sure. I think the reason why a lot of solar companies don't try to do customer engagement and community engagement in a real community organizing fashion is because it takes skill to be a community organizer and build trust with local communities. And it takes time on the front end, but that time is well spent because it serves you for the rest of the life of the project, which is decades. That is huge. And it's interesting how you took experience from the working on the Obama campaign, President Obama's campaign, to what you're doing now, because you would think it would be very unrelated but you're still really building community, organizing community, educating the community. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And what community organizing at its heart is about how do you build mass movements? How do you get people to work together to do seemingly impossible things? And I think the mission of switching our economy to 100% renewable and clean energy in some ways feels like this huge impossible mission. And the only way we do it is we build these mass movements. Yeah, definitely. That's such a huge thing. And then it becomes exponential. 
and it really just grows. You know, then you're a brand that they trust, the community trusts and recommends, not just in their communities, but other communities as well. And then as more states incorporate community solar. Yeah, exactly. And because of the political environment we're in right now with a greater emphasis on social justice and low-income inclusion and Black, Indigenous, people of color inclusion, you're going to see a lot, I think, more policy mandates around serving these customers and working within the communities too. Definitely. And that actually is a great transition to my next question is about the LMI community, low-moderate income, how states have focused on as part of their programs to provide social to the LMI community. Can you talk about why that's been more of an importance from you know, state government's perspective to have that in like pilot programs or in legislation? Yeah. And you talked earlier about how we're a little bit different from other community solar companies. And I think our emphasis on low-income inclusion and inclusion of communities of color has been another way that we've been a little bit unique because you're not going to find that many you know, for-profit solar companies that are highly focused on serving underserved communities, unfortunately. But I think that's changing, which is really exciting. And the reason why it's changing is twofold. We're in this pandemic and this pandemic has made us all realize that yes, a rising tide lifts all boats, but not everyone is in the same boat. You know, some of us are in yachts and some of us are in leaky rowboats and our health, our collective health as a society, as an economy suffers if there are a lot of people who are in those leaky rowboats, eventually that comes back and hits all of us because our fates are tied in a meet kind of, as MLK Jr. talked about, a, a network of mutuality. And so given that is a truism that no one has been able to ignore, that inequality is a serious problem, and the other tide is that natural disasters have become much, much worse in recent years. And people have been awakened in the mainstream that climate is a crisis, not just the people working in our industry, but now people in the mainstream are saying we have to do something about climate. And climate is affecting frontline communities much more than other folks. Meaning if you're low income or you're, if you're black and brown, you're going to be affected by climate change more than affluent folks. And that has to be a call to action. Like we, if we're going to get to 100% renewable and clean, we have to figure out how to include everyone in this transition. And so I think the role of government has been to realize that policy needs to be one of the most innovative risk-taking tools in order for us to do more low-income inclusion or else the green transition will continue to be inequitable. And so one of the ways we're seeing this happen now in policy is you're sometimes seeing LMI mandates, low to moderate income inclusion mandates, where some part of the project has to be given to low-income populations. Then in other states, you're seeing more of incentives as a structure to incentivize developers and financiers to develop projects serving low-income customers, like the NYCHA community solar projects that you want and we are also working on, that you can incentivize developers to include more low-income customers. And we tend to think that both are important tools in this country where we have parochial energy regulations across the country and we have to deal with state-by-state -state regulations, different regulations make sense in different places. And so ultimately, the thing to focus on is that low to moderate income Americans are paying a disproportion of their amount of their income on energy are disproportionately living next to fossil fuels, are disproportionately suffering from air pollution and thus COVID morbidity. 
living in hotter neighborhoods and are living unhealthier lives because of our addiction to fossil fuels. And so the solution is to not exclude them from the clean energy industry, which is what has happened to date, but and to include them. And then your other question was, how do we reach low-income customers as well, right? I think that's... That's definitely a question. And that was a great summary, honestly, of like how it starts from uh, the issues that are happening disproportionately to these communities. And then how government is trying to incent a more equitable transition into 100% renewable. So that was great. If I've learned anything in the last you know, six or seven years of working on this in the United States, low-income inclusion and energy access is what I mean. I think I've learned that we need every tool in the toolbox to be working on this problem, meaning we need the private sector, we need public sector, we need nonprofits to all be working on climate justice and energy equity because it's not going to happen organically on its own. And so that's why what you guys stand for as an organization, but also what we're seeing in terms of the current federal administration's emphasis on environmental justice is such an important inflection point in our industry. Yeah, definitely. That's huge. And I think one of the major points is, which is huge with the LMI communities, energy is a huge cost for everyone. But to have like a discount to their energy, which is one of maybe the second highest costs outside of rent, is like a huge opportunity. And you talk about 10 to 20% discounts with community solar, usually without a commitment. Can you talk about like how you acquire those LMI customers? The other thing too is to build trust, right? You know, the LMI community has had, you know, third-party energy suppliers, you know, come into their communities, offer very aggressive teaser rates to basically sign up with them. And then, you know, as time goes on, the rate is not what was originally like promised or talked about. Can you talk about like how you acquire those customers, build their trust? And also the confusion too about community solar and, you know, working with the third-party energy supplier, which I'm sure, you know, comes up in conversations. So. Yeah. First of all, everyone, I think, can get confused about how their energy works. We're not really educated in this country about how when you turn on your light switch, where is your energy coming from? And so you compound that with the fact that low-income populations, according to studies, are not less interested in the renewable energy industry. They're not less interested in clean energy. They're not less interested in the environment, but they have for sure been educated or targeted less by energy companies because they're considered a less lucrative population to serve. And so because you don't see a lot of interaction between the clean energy industry and low-income communities, there is a lot of education and work that you have to do and mistrust that you have to get over. And that's why it's so important, especially for the low-income communities, to do that community engagement we talked about earlier from day one. Not when you're getting your construction going and you're ready to sign up customers. Like That is not the only time that you should be engaging the community. And it's kind of more of an unpopular idea, but what we've seen work is engage the low-income communities right when you're starting to get your project going. You can actually engage the communities to find sites, which we're currently doing with some projects we're co-developing for low-income communities. You can get the community involved so early on, so they're bought in, and that is that upfront cost of time and effort, but it's an investment that will pay off because those communities, if they're brought on board from the beginning, 
beginning, they will help you acquire customers for your project down the line. And they'll be such enthusiastic ambassadors for the project, but not if you don't talk to them until right when you need them. And so in terms of how do we sign up low-income customers, when we have the opportunity to work on a project early on, we do start really early. We go out and do the community organizing work to build trust with the local organizations that are already serving low-income communities. It is never our goal to parachute in and act like we own the place. It is our goal to empower the low-income communities and then the organizations and agencies that work with those low-income communities to come up with a partnership. We say, we'll help connect you to local clean energy. We'll get you access to energy savings. And we're going to earn your trust over time to show that we're not going to cheat you. We're not going to raise the rates on you. We're going to explain the legalese to you in plain English. And we're never going to sign you up without making sure you know how billing works and how crediting works. And that's why I think our solstice churn rates are really low compared to industry churn rates because we put the time in the beginning to make sure customers are educated and then finding those local partners that people already trust. To your point earlier, the biggest problem I think we have in residential clean energy is that there's a huge deficit of trust in our industry. And it's for a good reason. Sometimes people have been cheated. People have been sold teaser rates that change without their knowing later. But the way that we undo that is we stop cheating people. We explain things correctly. We show that their trust is something we want to earn over time. Trust is not entitled. Trust is earned. And we can only move at the speed of trust. And not working with communities from the get-go is self-sabotage. That is so key. I mean, what you really said, like empowering the community, building that relationship with the community in the beginning, then it more of a transactional relationship when you need the customers. I think that's a key differentiator. And then the community, once they trust you, that's so interesting that you know they're recommending sites to you to potentially develop projects. So it's like this long-term relationship that's about empowerment and trust. So... Absolutely. We partner with community organizations. We started out with just kind of partnering them to enroll customers for the local community solar farm. And then we've had these multi-year relationships with them where they come back exactly like you said. They come back and they say, hey, there's a plot of land. Can we partner and build solar on it together? And it's been the gift that keeps on giving in terms of that trust building process. And then how are usually like the contracts structured Can you talk a little bit about the general terms like for a residential customer? I'm not talking like commercial industrial. Yeah. And this is one of the biggest points that we've been trying to advocate for behind the scenes in terms of our negotiations with our solar developer partners, because in the beginning of community solar, contracts were not customer friendly at all. We're talking about community solar. Just to recap, you're not putting anything on your home. There's no upfront cost. And if you were to leave, you could easily be replaced by someone else in your community. But yet people were forced to sign 20-year contracts with with cancellation fees, with a FICO requirement of 680 and above. And we looked at the developers and said, you know, this is actually making it harder for you to fill your projects. It's much more expensive to find customers that are willing to sign a 20-year contract for community solar with a cancellation fee. And so by showing our customer data for the difference in conversion rates, the difference in cost of customer acquisition of having a really unfriendly customer contract versus a friendly customer contract of something closer to no contract length or no cancellation fee, no FICO requirement, we show that the costs are demonstrably substantially different. And over time, we actually convinced some of our developer partners to get rid of their long-term contracts and move towards something more customer-friendly. So right now, you see a range that's much more on the 
zero to five year term length uh, as opposed to the 20 year term length, which is great. And you really have seen cancellation fees phased out, which is the most important facet, I think, of getting people to sign up quickly for community solar. And you're also seeing more and more developers agree to not have a FICO score requirement on their projects, either taking a different kind of alternative qualification standard, we invented one called the energy score, or realizing that community solar is less than your utility bill. And so why do we need a FICO check anyway? So those are the ways that the product has changed over time and it's becoming more customer friendly, which is only good for the industry. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you you love, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. I think one of the things that it's huge, like from going to 20-year contracts to five, as you said, or lower and no cancellation fees for the customer to acquire them and then to keep them on board. It's interesting. You mentioned like the energy score that you created to use that over FICO. Can you talk about that? Because I think it's pretty innovative. Yeah, sure. And I think this is something that everyone in our industry is pretty aware of, but people outside of our industry don't know that in order to get solar in this country, you generally have to have a great FICO score to get financing, or you have to pay for it upfront yourself. So that FICO score, it's lowest at its most flexible. It's about a 650 cutoff. And then we've seen as high as 680 and 700 FICO score cutoffs. And the percentage of America that doesn't have 680, 700 FICO score is more than half of the country. And when we're talking about the importance of including low-income customers and Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the clean energy transition, we have to recognize that FICO scores are pretty discriminatory against those populations. The reason is FICO doesn't measure your utility repayment history or your cell phone payment history or your rental payment history. It pretty much just measures mortgages and credit cards. And why is that the proxy for getting solar in this country? So we kind of got a a little disappointed with the process of trying to sign up someone for solar, getting them really excited, getting them past that educational problem that we talked about earlier, getting them past the trust problem. And then we find out that they have a 600 FICO score. So they are locked out of community solar. Well, that doesn't make sense. So we invented something called the energy score. And it's a machine learning backed algorithm that's meant to be an alternative to using FICO in the energy industry. And it's based on a bunch of demographic and financial data, but it's also based on your utility repayment history, which we believe is a better proxy for determining whether you're going to pay your community solar bill or your rooftop solar bill. And we found that our energy score is more accurate at predicting who pays their utility bills on time than FICO scores. And the energy score is more inclusive of low to moderate income Americans. That's kind of really exciting that you can do what's good for business, what's more accurate in terms of determining payment behavior 
but you can also do what's good for low-income customers to get access to this industry they've been excluded from forever. So you don't have to choose between inclusion and business. And there are ways that we can use our technological advances and better data science to chart that new path in the future. The last thing I'll say is that when we talk about why low-income populations are not included in clean energy, it is often coming down to this concept of risk. And there's this perception that serving low-income customers, the perception of serving them is that there's a perception of greater risk than the real risk. That's our hypothesis at Solstice. The perceived risk of serving low-income customers and BIPOC customers, Black, Indigenous, people of color, is greater than the real risk. And no one has really tried to quantify this risk and prove that hypothesis out. And this is our way of showing that the perceived risk is greater than the real risk. We're measuring risk wrong. So we can measure risk correctly and then include more people in this clean energy revolution. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because you would think utility repayment history is like the best indicator of whether people would pay community solar. So it's just interesting that we're still using outdated FICO to kind of determine that. So I really appreciate all the work that you've done to educate the industry on that. Thanks, thanks. And developers are aware too. They don't want to use the FICO scores because it makes their projects harder to fill and slower to get projects up and going. But it's often financiers that are demanding that simply because this is the way that financing has happened for things like rooftop solar. And so one important point to mention is there's no reason why we should be financing community solar the same way we finance rooftop solar because with rooftop solar, if someone defaults on their bill and you're left with a stranded asset on their rooftop, it's hard to get back. Whereas if someone defaults on their bill or moves away in community solar, you can just easily replace them very easily. So why are we talking about 20-year risk or 20-year contracts when we should be talking about the risk being a month or two and easily mitigatable? And the risk can be easily mitigated if we measure risk correctly. Ian made another great point. Like With the contracts being so short-term and then being able to get other customers then really like these sort of credit metrics are not as important if you could easily just get another customer versus, you know, doing like a PPA on a house. And so that's another interesting point as well with the shorter term contracts, like the way to look at it too. Yeah. And one more additional kind of logical point to that is most of the community solar projects in the states, the 20 states that allow for third-party developed community solar, most of those projects are giving you guaranteed savings. So you're paying less than your utility bill. So again, why are we requiring people to have a FICO check when we can just make sure they pay their utility bills on time? That's all that matters at the end of the day. So that's a great point. And I appreciate you, you know, focusing on that because that's an important thing. You know, an interesting thing that we didn't talk about is like you mentioned about obviously credit scores as an impediment for customers to be able to get solar on their roof. But what are other ideal residential community solar customers? So... We believe that community solar is great for the people that can't put solar on their own rooftop. And when we looked into the reasons why people can't put solar on their rooftop, we were astounded that it's actually the majority of Americans. Four out of five Americans are locked out of the rooftop solar market because of a variety of reasons, including their renters and condo owners, and they don't control their rooftop, or their roof is disqualified because of some structural problem, like there's a tree covering their roof, the roof is facing the wrong way, 
it's made out of the wrong materials, it's flat, or they don't have the finances to pay for solar upfront or the right FICO score to get access to solar financing. So when you combine all of those reasons, then you begin to see that you kind of have to be a unicorn to do rooftop solar. And if you can do rooftop solar, you should absolutely do it. You should do it because it's going to save you more money in the long run and you can own your system outright. But for all of those people that can't do rooftop solar, community solar is a good fit for them. And community solar isn't in all 50 states right now, but there are 42 states that have some sort of community solar program. About half of those states are utility-led programs because utilities are starting to realize that community solar is not going away and that they have to try pilots themselves. And then in the other half of the states, state legislatures have said people should be allowed to benefit from community solar. And so we have seen in the last six years of working on this that the industry has grown so quickly, it's expanding really quickly. And so hopefully community solar can be available to you and your listeners without too much further wait. But it's a great tool to get people access to solar who can't do rooftop. And then the second population that it should be serving more and more is low-income populations. Because it costs less than your utility bill, this should be one of the main tools that we're using to get low-income and communities of color access to clean energy savings for the first time. That's great. Can you talk about what state solstice is focused on for you know, customer acquisition management? Yeah. So to date, we've worked on kind of 30 projects throughout New York, Massachusetts, and Illinois. And we're currently in discussions to expand to a number of states, including Maryland, New Jersey, Maine, Minnesota, Hawaii, and California. That's pretty much all the major community solar states in the country. So that's great to hear. Yeah. I mean, the industry is growing so quickly and especially with the new kind of federal government commitments to investing in clean energy and environmental justice. And given their few tools on the clean energy inclusion side, other than community solar and yeah, definitely. I think it's huge. Like, as you mentioned, there's so many states with proposed legislation with an LMI component. You know, you specifically talked about how the federal government or the current administration's really, you know, focused on climate justice, which you're seeing states as well offering, you know, LMI incentives for community solar. So that's really amazing to hear. And it's just going to keep increasing. So. Yeah. And states like New York, through their NYSERDA programming, are starting to offer grants for pre-development funds to do that kind of community engagement that we talked about earlier. And so you're going to start to see more capital flow to incentivize doing this work, which is really exciting and very much needed. That's a great point that I forgot to mention, because like, for example, the New York Housing Authority with the Community Solar Project, they use pre-development funding to do the initial sort of community solar RFP, you know, we eventually participated in. So that's a great point that you're seeing where there's outside funding or federal or state funding to do that. And I think they're talking about it on the federal level to do it in some, it's in the early stages, but I've heard conversations about that. Yeah, exactly. And that's because pre-development is the riskiest time for a project. And so again, when we're saying the perception of risk and the real risk, like we just need to mitigate the risk somehow and policy and government incentives is a great way to do that too. It definitely is. What are some of the future trends that you're seeing in community solar that maybe we might not be aware of? 
Yeah, I think because we've seen so many blackouts due to natural disasters, but also man-made responses to natural disasters, that we have seen a surge in people talking about storage being attached to community solar projects. And to date, most community solar projects have not had storage, largely because the economics of storage are not quite there. But what's really exciting is that's going to change in the next five to 10 years. In the stimulus package that we saw passed by Congress in December 2020, which was obviously the biggest energy act to be passed in over a decade, that included a billion dollars of R&D for energy storage. And although we couldn't get an energy storage tax credit in there, that's still on the table for future legislation being talked about. Another big trend that we're seeing in community solar are governments and states starting to talk about having people, instead of opting in to community solar, you're seeing more opt-out programs, meaning entire municipalities are switching to community solar together and they're telling their customers, hey, this is cheaper. So we're just going to sign you up for it. If you don't want to be a part of it, you can opt out. But that is markedly different in terms of customer adoption from the current framework, which is an opt-in framework, which is that we're trying to get people to sign up one-on-one and convincing them community solar is a good idea for them, getting them to trust us and then signing them up. And it's just not as scalable as an opt-out program. And so behavioral economic studies show that many more people will stay in a program that's good for them, good for their health, good for everyone if it's an opt-out program as opposed to an opt-in program, just because our brains can only handle so many choices at once. And so that is a great trend that we're seeing, as well as the rise of things like CCAs, community aggregation. And then another trend that we're seeing is that trend that I talked about earlier, this move towards more customer-friendly contracts in terms of less long-term contracts, less cancellation fees, which is really important. And another thing that New York State did was make it illegal to have a really outsized cancellation fee in community solar contracts. And that was really helpful because developers and financiers that we had been talking to weren't going to lower their cancellation fee until the state mandated that they had to have a lower cancellation fee. So all of these things are really important to making the product of residential solar more customer friendly, more easy to access, more simple, more accessible, and that only helps the industry grow faster. Yeah, these are all great trends and this is really helpful. I appreciate you walking through it. Can you talk about how you started Solstice and maybe what got you interested in renewable energy? Absolutely. So I didn't used to work in renewables until about nine years ago. And my previous career was kind of working in politics and policy, as you might tell from my big emphasis on policy. I worked in the Obama campaign, the first one, for a year and a half, you know, knocking on doors, organizing communities, and then managing a team of organizers. And then I worked in the government on national security policy and counterterrorism. So very different world in the Middle East, actually. And it was in the Middle East that I realized that we have this really unhealthy addiction to oil and the geopolitics of oil are really a form of self-sabotage. And so wanted to transition to renewables and initially started working out in India and Pakistan on solar microgrids, solar home systems, and solar lanterns. And my co-founder and I were working in India and we had this realization that, wait a second, back home in America, we don't know that many people that have access to solar for the reasons I said earlier. Just you have to be really unique set of circumstances to put solar on your home. 
So let's go back home and figure out a way to make solar more accessible to everyday Americans. And that's what prompted us to start Solstice, because we wanted to make sure that solar was so easy and so affordable that everyone could do it, because we believe energy is a human right. And we believe that the clean energy industry is not as equitable, not nearly as equitable as it should be. And that low-income inclusion aspect of our work has been driving our mission from day one. Because the people who need solar savings the most in this country are currently the least likely to get it. So we want to get solar to everyone, but we want to make sure that the most vulnerable populations among us also get access. So that's why you see Solstice. We have a, a nonprofit arm, a 501c3, that works entirely on low-income access to community solar. And that's where we could develop things like the energy score, which seemed pretty risky to develop in the eyes of people in their early days. And then we have our software company, our customer services and software company that's handling the whole customer experience for these projects. And so in tandem, these two organizations, which are separate organizations, separate governance structures, separate staff, but together work to make sure that solar is more accessible to ordinary people. That's amazing to hear like your background and, you know, how you started Solstice and from, you know, listening to you, like your passion really resonates in your voice about it and your passion for renewable energy. Can you talk about real quick, like one suggestion maybe that you could give to someone in entrepreneurship or what you've learned from starting Solstice? Lesson one is that the successful startups are not the ones that had the right answers on day one, that they were the ones that learned the fastest and they were the ones that were most responsive to their customers and they were the ones that provided the most value to their customers. And so we emphasize the process of learning a lot at our organization and making sure that we're learning fastest because a lot of what we're doing has never been tried before, like the energy score, like low-income community solar projects. And a lot of what we're doing needs to change because we have to change business as usual. Number two lesson is I think as entrepreneurs in our early stages, we put a lot of emphasis on financial capital. And financial capital is really important because you can't do anything without it, for sure. But I realized that we were emphasizing the wrong things by just asking people for fundraising money. We started to shift how we were interacting with investors by really focusing on building our social capital, talking to people and building building our network of people who were frankly interested in talking to us drone on about our business and were really excited to help us and give us advice. And by building our network of those folks, we began to build trust and earn their trust. And then the financial capital flowed from that. So I think rather than... It's the truism that people always say is, if you ask for money, you'll get advice. And if you ask for advice, you'll get money. And my extension of that is focus on social capital, not financial capital. And financial capital will flow from that. And I didn't grow up with money part of why I'm so passionate about low-income inclusion is because I was raised by a single mom who earned minimum wage. Right now, federal minimum wage earns you an annual salary of 15K a year. And it's not a lot of money at all to live on. So a lot of what the lessons from this entrepreneurship experience has been is to redefine wealth differently than just money. Obviously, our business it needs to be financially successful in order to keep going. That's a given. But we need to redefine what return on investment means to include the effects on communities, the effects on future generations, our kids and our grandchildren. And so redefine defining what wealth means and return on investment means has been a really important learning for us to continue to do this work. 
We can build more equitable world. We can build more clean energy. We can address climate change without exploiting vulnerable populations. We have to accept that as a basis for operating. That's great. And that's an amazing like advice and suggestions. This has been an amazing interview, Steph. I appreciate your time today. If our audience wanted to learn more about Solstice and you specifically, what's the best way for them? Yeah, so definitely reach out on our website. You can email info at solstice.us, as in United States, or us. And then you can also just visit our website and learn more about our work and sign up for projects that are open in your communities or sign up for a wait list for Community Solar and put your hand up and say, one Community Solar wants to come to my community. I want to be a part of the solar farm too. That's amazing. And we'll have that as well in the notes of the podcast so people could easily find it. I appreciate what you're doing and keep the good fight. And it's amazing to hear your progress and what Solstice is doing. Thanks for your time, Steph. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good chatting today. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.